And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to the show. How are you doing today, Sarah? Pretty good. Did laundry? Yeah, which is like a big thing. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, we're recording this in advance of when it'll come out, but the day Obviously. we're... Well, <laughs> like more than people might think. Yeah. The day we're recording this is Easter Sunday, and it's just, it's weird for Easter to happen and not do Easter, is really what it is. Like, because we didn't go anywhere, we didn't see anyone, there's no Easter dinner. Yeah. I phoned my parents and talked to them this afternoon, and that was kind of about it. Yeah. It's just a little strange. Like, I'm not a big religious, religious person, so it's not like a big deal that way, but it's just still kind of weird. Well, because you have a set ritual around mm, it. Sure. It might not be religious ritual, but it's still a like set of expectations of what you do, and that's disrupted. Yeah, it's just made it a kind of weird day. Yeah, but our ritual of Sunday evenings is scream scene recording time still stands. Yes, that's completely normal. Yeah. Well, what are we watching tonight? Today... Sarah, we are watching Bride of the Gorilla from 1951. Cool. Sequel to just The Gorilla, right? No. Because we had Frankenstein and then Bride of Frankenstein, so you'd think. No, it's just, listen, a lot of these B-monster movies have titles that are just bits and pieces of other earlier movies' titles slapped together. Okay. This is Bride of the Gorilla. I think there's Bride of the Monster, Bride of the Atom. It doesn't matter. They're just made-up titles. Isn't Bride of the Atom just Eve? No, I Atom. Guess they, they, Atom. I guess they don't really get married. They're just, like, shoved into a garden and told to just chill. <sighs> <laughs> so, the circumstances that led to Bride of the Gorilla begin when Universal Pictures became Universal International in 1946. We kind of talked about that in a previous episode. In a couple of previous episodes, Yeah. So when that happened, uh, the studio discontinued their B pictures um, to focus on more prestigious productions. So no more horror, western, serials, any of that stuff coming from Universal International. William Goetz, the new head of the studio, had really no interest in the studio's back catalog, and so he leased the entire 1930-1946 studio library to independent distributors Jack Broder and Joseph Harris. And so their company, Real Art Pictures, got the theatrical re-release rights to Universal's pre-1946 library for the next 10 years. Wow, that's a big deal. I feel like Goetz wasn't really looking ahead yeah. at television. No, Because I no. feel like he just shot himself in the foot. Television rights weren't included in the deal. Okay, okay. Uh, so this is just for theatrical reissue. Um, but Goetz really didn't just, he just didn't see any value in the pre-1946 library uh, of, like, B-movies, because the studio was sort of divorcing themselves from that. So Real Art made a business of reissuing Universal's old movies in double feature packages with brand new advertising campaigns. Many of the posters and trailers for, like, old Universal monster movies that you'll find if you look them up online actually come from the Real Art re-releases, from the 1950s rather than the original releases from Universal. These re-releases were extremely successful, and uh, theater owners found that real art packages occasionally did better business than new product. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, there was a steady market for these re-releases, but exhibitors did end up telling Broder that they would pay more if he could pair the re-releases with new pictures. Sure. So... Using the money they had been making from their success re-releasing Universal movies, Real Art started funding new B-pictures to serve alongside the re-releases of the old B-pictures. So the A-picture, quote-unquote, of the double feature would be the re-release of the old B-picture, then accompanied by a new B-picture from Real Art that would be, you know, even cheaper. Yeah. I'm not surprised that this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, the release structure 
up to this point mm-hmm. has been A picture, B picture. It makes sense that they would do a release like this. Yeah, so what we have today for our movie is something that is the B picture to a re-released B picture. Do you know what it was released with? Uh, I don't know what its original package was released with, no. It'd be funny if it was Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> so that's sort of the genesis of Bride of the Gorilla, and that is how we come to it being the directorial debut of writer Kurt Siedmak. Now, Siedmak, we of course know well on the show as the writer of The Invisible Man Returns, Black Friday, The Ape, The Wolfman... Invisible Agent, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, I Walked with a Zombie, Son of Dracula, Lady and the Monster, The Climax, House of Frankenstein, and Beast with Five Fingers, among many other films. Mm-hmm. Um, since Beast with Five Fingers, which was in 1946, he has worked on two projects. Ooh. Because when you make a name as a horror writer, yeah. and the horror genre stops. Yeah, you can't really do anything. Well, no one thinks you can do anything. So he wrote the story for Berlin Express, a 1948 drama shot on location in post-war Berlin by Jacques Tourneur. Uh, if you recall, Seed Mac was a, a German expat. Yeah. That was for RKO. And then he also wrote Tarzan's Magic Fountain in 1949, also for RKO. Okay. The ultra-low budget for Bride of the Gorilla afforded Seed Mac the opportunity to direct as well as write the screenplay. Well, it's nice that he's still writing... Because we know he can definitely do that. (laughs) It's his brother that has been a director up to this point. That's right. Yeah. So the film was shot in seven days. Oh, no. (laughs) With cinematography by 61-year-old director of photography Charles Van Enger, who was one of the cinematographers on Phantom of the Opera back in 1925. Uh, He also shot Night Monster in 1942, The Spider Woman in 1944, and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948, among many other films. Okay, so he he knows what he's doing. Top build in this film is infamous actress Barbara Payton. Born Barbara Redfield in 1927 in Minnesota, uh, she had parents who had alcohol problems and anger issues, and she married her first husband at age 16, and she dropped out of school in 11th grade with her parents' approval. The marriage was annulled soon afterwards, and then she married her second husband at age 18 veteran combat pilot John Payton, and she moved with him to L.A., uh, where he went to University of Southern California under the GI Bill. Looking for something to do during the day, she decided to begin a career as a model, and that was very successful. She had a lot of natural charisma that she used to um, further her modeling career. Uh, she... I feel like you're trying to speak around something. <laughs> She enjoyed the attention that her looks got her, and she divorced Peyton to focus on her career, leaving him with their two-year-old son. She became a notorious Hollywood party girl, and she got a contract at Universal in 1949 when William Goetz noticed her at a party and signed her to the studio for $1,000 a week. She then appeared in the film noir Trapped in 1949, and the film noir Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye in 1950, where she co-starred with James Cagney. Cagney was so smitten with Peyton that he bought her contract and brought her over to Warner Brothers for $5,000 a week. Peyton had affairs constantly with just sort of... Anyone? Whoever was passing by. And in 1950, she began a relationship with actor Franchot Tone. She got engaged to him, but while she was seeing him... She also began seeing actor Tom Neal, a boxer-turned-actor star of Detour. I've actually told this story before when talking about Tom Neal, but she was seeing both of them at the same time and playing them against one another. On September 14th, 1951, the two men got into a fistfight at her apartment that ended with Neal putting Tone into the hospital with a concussion and broken nose. Peyton subsequently married Tone, on September 28th, while he was recovering from his injuries. Her torrid private life kind of ended up destroying her career, along with Tom Neal's. She went from being like this up-and-coming A film noir actress to the lead actress in Bride of the Gorilla. Yeah. During the shooting of this film, uh, she had an affair with her African-American co-star Woody Strode, and the production was hounded by a private detective that her husband, Tone, had hired to follow her around on set 
uh, who did end up getting a picture of Peyton and Strode together in bed. So after marrying Tone, Peyton continued to see Tom Neal, which led to her divorce from Tone in 1952. Then she and Tom Neal went on the road with a traveling production of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which was designed to capitalize on their notoriety as a couple. They both uh, enabled each other's drinking problems and other vices, and uh, the production and their relationship ended when they separated in 1954. Uh, Peyton subsequently fell into drug addiction, in addition to her alcohol addiction, and was sort of dropped out of sight in the late 50s before being eventually arrested by the LAPD for prostitution in the early 1960s. Offered detox upon her arrest, she said, I'd rather drink and die. Oh, girl. By 1963, she was living with her parents again, who are now living in San Diego. Uh, They owned a bar and enabled her drinking because they were heavy drinkers themselves. She passed away in 1967 at age 39 from liver failure. Yeah. That's sad. Mm-hmm. Second build in this film is Lon Chaney Jr., who was also suffering from alcoholism at this time in his life. Mm. The last time we saw Chaney, he had been let go from his universal contract due to his unpredictable behavior after his final inner sanctum mystery thriller, Pillow of Death, in 1945. Cheney has since sort of bounced around getting work where he could in comedies, westerns, noirs, basically all the B-movie genres. In 1948, he returned to Universal International to reprise his trademark role of Lawrence Talbot in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Cheney saw it as his chance to get back in with the studio, so he behaved on set and he gave the part his all. The film was a hit, but Universal just wasn't interested in making those kinds of movies anymore. Yeah, it's a hit for Abbott and Costello. Yes, not not for for Lawrence Talbot. Exactly. Uh, And they just also weren't willing to chance Chaney on the more high-profile releases that they were building the studio towards. So he did not get a new contract with Universal International, and he attempted suicide that year with an overdose of sleeping pills. Oh, no. After recovering in the hospital, he continued acting, appearing in supporting roles in small pictures like this one. Now, Seed Mac had written the script with Cheney in mind for the lead role, but the actor's deteriorating health and appearance made it clear that that just wasn't going to be possible, and so Cheney was given a supporting role, and the lead role was instead given to a relative nobody, Raymond Burr. Oh, cool. Born in 1917 in New Westminster, British Columbia, uh, Raymond Burr got his acting start as part of a repertory company in Toronto in 1934. He moved to New York in 1940 and started on Broadway in 1942, and he was signed to RKO in 1944. He was always a very large, broad man. Um, His weight hovered around 300 pounds in his 20s. Uh, And this limited the kind of roles he got cast as, largely to heavies. That is, thugs and villains in an array of films noir in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Yeah, he's kind of built like a a football player. Yes. Um, Like very stocky, very much a wall of muscle. Yeah, so he, you know, was mostly in crime films as, like... You know, not the lead villain, but the lead villain's, like, enforcer. Yeah. He's in Bride of Vengeance, which is a 1949 Lucrezia Borgia film uh, (laughs) based on a script by Val Luton that was competing with the 1949 Cesare Borgia film Prince of Foxes. With Orson Welles. Right. Um, Bride of Vengeance was, like, this competing production, and in that, Raymond Burr plays the role of Michelotto, uh, Cesare's, like... Assassin Enforcer. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a good movie. It's very historically inaccurate. Well, of course it isn't, Ben. Details of Raymond Burr's personal life are difficult to properly ascertain, which was entirely on purpose. Yeah. Uh, so he was gay, and he hid this. And to hide this, he made a habit of just regularly, freely just making shit up about his life when interviewed by reporters. 
Um, so he would make up wives, ex-wives, children, uh, living and dead, who just never existed. He would give himself an imaginary happy childhood and, like, an imaginary American upbringing and, like, imaginary... he's even hiding that he's Canadian. Sometimes. Like, the thing about <laughs> it was that it wasn't a consistent fake backstory. Mm. It was just different every time. Sometimes he served in the army in World War II. He uh, made up a wife who died in the same plane crash that killed Leslie Howard, which wasn't true. He made up a son who died at age 10 of leukemia, which wasn't true. Wow. He made up, like, whole families who never existed. Uh, as well as, like, just dozens of weird, varied anecdotes for an ever-shifting autobiography made up entirely of tall tales and lies. So, Raymond Burr's weight and the fact that he was always cast as thugs and his hidden sexuality kind of caused him to have very low self-esteem uh, at this point in his life. He would get cast as, like, fathers and middle-aged men when he was in his, like, 20s and 30s. Yeah. Now, of course, his big breakthrough was the role of Perry Mason on the TV courtroom drama of the same name, a role for which he lost 60 pounds in order to get it. Uh, he played Perry Mason from 1957 to 1966, and then he played disabled police officer Robert Ironside on the TV series Ironside from 1967 to 1975, one of the few sort of TV actors to have, like, two big... TV series roles, right? Yeah. Like him and like Andy Griffith, kind of William Shatner, I guess. Uh, Raymond Burr passed away in 1993 at age 76. Mm-hmm. Uh, his estate all went to like his longtime uh, partner. Oh. Yeah. Who who was it? Uh, I think his name was something like Robert Benavides or something. Like he wasn't like a famous person or anything. Okay. I, um, I just assumed he would be an actor as well. No, yeah. He's, he was like a average normal person average normal person yeah that means that average normal people can marry celebrities too that's right another familiar face in the cast is tom conway who we recognize from cat people i walked with a zombie and the seventh victim he had canceled his contract with rko in 1946 and he's just been bouncing around as an independent agent since then it hasn't been great for his bank book hmm as I mentioned earlier, uh, one person in the cast is Woody Strode. He appears in a minor role as a policeman. Uh, he was born in 1914 in Los Angeles, and his early career was really as an athlete. He played college football. He was one of the first black NFL players playing for the L.A. Rams in 1946. Uh, he played for the Calgary Stampeders in the CFL, uh, including when they won the Grey Cup in 1948. Oh, cool. Uh, he then had to retire due to injury, and so he went into acting. Uh, he appeared, like, his acting career is from, like, the 50s through the 90s. He's in a lot of movies. Most people would probably recognize him for his role in Spartacus. He's one of, like, Spartacus's fellow gladiators. That's probably his best-known part. Uh, so this is Bride of the Gorilla. Yes, it is. So we have uh, actor, stuntman Steve Calvert appearing in the gorilla suit. Mm. Now, Calvert was a stunt performer, and he became a gorilla performer when he bought Crash Corrigan's gorilla suit for $1,800 when Corrigan retired from being gorillas in 1948. Uh, Calvert then went on to become a major gorilla performer in the 1950s. <laughs> The demand for such a niche vocation <laughs> yes. is so interesting. And to remind uh, listeners, or if you haven't heard us talk about it before, basically the way that, like, gorillas worked in movies at that time is you would have a stunt performer who owned his own gorilla suit, and then that was his deal. Like, yeah. you you hired him and got the suit with him, and he just, like, had a specialty in, as performing gorillas. And Crash Corrigan... We've seen Crash Corrigan on the show. Yeah, many it was, times. Yeah, well, many times. The one that definitely comes to mind is um, the Boris Karloff, the ape. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he was able to retire because he owned a, a ranch that got used to shoot, like, westerns on and stuff. And, like, he was able to rent out. So because of that, he was able to sit pretty. So Bride of the Gorilla was released on October 24th. 1951. Just in time for Halloween. Mm-hmm. It is now in the public domain. Surprising. And it's on our YouTube playlist. Awesome. So, folks, you too can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the trials and tribulations of Bride of the Gorilla from 1951, directed 
by Kurt Seedmack. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene. We just finished watching Bride of the Gorilla from 1951, directed by Kurt Seidmack. Ben, what did you think? I have a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very conflicted about a lot of it, which like I think means that it averages out to a. Eh. Oh, I'm. I did not like this movie. It was a long 65 minutes. Mm. I usually try to find something, like, that gets my interest about some of these, like, bad B-movies, something to enjoy and have fun with, and, whew, it was a little hard to find something for this one. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't, like, hate it. I don't think the pieces add up to a worthwhile whole. Yeah. And I don't think it, like, succeeds at what it's trying to do. Yeah. Um, but, like, there wasn't really anything about it that got my goat up, you know? I guess I'm just disappointed. But I can go into more of that in the discussion. Sure. Before that, I guess we have to talk about the story of this movie. Yeah. Um, so, why don't you tell us a bit about it, Sarah? Sure. So, it is set in... Uh, generic South America. You can kind of just say it's Brazil. Yeah, it's the it's the Amazon, and they do mention Rio de Janeiro, so I think it is supposed to be Brazil, yes. Yeah. Um, and we are at a rubber plantation, which also kind of puts us in, like, the central Brazil area. Mm-hmm. Barney Chavez, who is Raymond Burr, is getting a little too friendly and close to the plantation owner's wife, Dina. This is in addition to sleeping around with the housemaid Marina and being a terrible plantation manager. The way we're introduced to him is he comes in and goes, don't you miss slavery where we didn't have to worry about these workers like complaining about working conditions or running off to start competing plantations? So that's that's a great entrance. Yeah, I feel like you decided to give up on the movie from that point on? Because I remember you, like, just giving a big sigh and then complaining about that one line two or three times throughout the rest of the evening. Well, because he has a tense relationship with his boss, the plantation owner, Klaus Van Gelder, and will tell Klaus how, you don't own me, I'm an independent person, I'm free. And it's like, but you were just saying how much you missed slavery, so you just like owning other people, I guess? Well, yeah, I mean, like, Ugh. that's not how bigotry works. It, it, like, people who are shitty aren't, like, rational about being shitty. They're not like, well, since I enjoy treating other people poorly, I myself should be treated poorly. It only is logical. Barney is currently in some hot water with the owner because he was at the house flirting with Dina instead of being in the woods with, with the workers, um, helping to prevent an accident where a worker, an unnamed worker, has lost his life. Mm-hmm. But that's a throwaway thing. We don't hear anything more about that, except that this is cause for Barney to be fired. Now, Dina mentions to Barney that she really hopes he doesn't leave. She's like, please don't go. I actually really care about you. I don't want you to go. I mean, I don't think they care about each other. They just want to fuck. Like, she's, the the thing about Dina is, like, she's, like, you know, she's Barbara Payton, so she's, like, 20-something, and Klaus is, like, your middle-aged, older man, and she's his trophy wife, right? And, like, meanwhile, Barney's walking around the house in a shirt that's, like, you know, maybe has one button done around the solar plexus and eternally has its sleeves rolled up to his uh, shoulders with his, you know, broad... Uh, manly body walking around the house all the time. Like, they have uh, an animal chemistry to the two of them that, uh, you know, is basically what's motivating all the rest of this. In any case, Dina asks him not to go. 
So this gives Bernie the confidence to go to Van Gelder and say, Dina and I love each other and there's nothing you can do about it. And Van Gelder's like, I fired you, go away. Yeah. And socks Barney in the jaw. Barney socks him back and just leaves him and tosses him down to where there's a venomous snake nearby. So Van Gelder gets killed by the snake's venom, and it appears as an accidental death. Yeah, it's it's not very convincing. Like, he slugs him in the gut, and Van Gelder just, like, falls over, and then Raymond Burgess stands there and watches as a snake slithers towards him. And there's really no reason why the guy doesn't just, like, get up and leave. But in any case, the snake has killed him. There is a witness to this murder, the um, housekeeper Al Long, who can't decide on what her accent is, but basically she's playing the role of Maria Uspinskaya, who played the uh, Roma woman in Wolfman. Yeah, she's one of those, you know, Amazon Roma that you hear so much about. (laughs) Now, she was already pretty mad with Barney because um, Marina had her heart broken um, by him because he's now going off with Dina. And then she witnesses the murder. So she takes this, like, special plant she has, puts two leaves over Van Gelder's eyes, and says something like, kill the murderer that you saw. Jungle will kill the murderer. She curses Barney. Blah, curse, curse. But now Barney and Dina can be together, and they organize their wedding pretty quick um, in the midst of the investigation into Van Gelder's murder, um, or rather accidental death. Um, The town doctor, Dr. Viette, who is Tom Conway, and police commissioner Taro, who is Lon Chaney, both suspect foul play and at least the commissioner is pretty vocal about being like, I don't think this was accidental, but they don't have sufficient evidence to really do anything about it. So Van Gelder's death is ruled an accident. Then we see Al Long begin to poison Barney with leaf juice from this special plant, beginning with, like, right after Barney and Dina are married. And this is when Barney begins acting pretty strangely. First, his hands hurt, and they appear to grow kind of wrinkly, like ape hands, and then grow dark with fur. The second kind of symptom, I guess, is that the jungle seems to call to him. And in any kind of reflective surfaces, be it a mirror or a the surface of the water, he sees himself as a giant ape. When these episodes start happening, there are... Tales across town of this new mysterious creature being in the jungle, um, killing livestock and just wreaking havoc. And there's also rumors of some kind of creature that they call a sucarote. Now, it's confusing, but the sucarote is supposed to be because we hear most of the dialogue about the sucarote from Commissioner Taro who, despite being played by Elon Chaney, is apparently, like, born and raised in this town in Brazil, went away to college to learn law stuff, and is, is now back as the police commissioner. He keeps going back and forth whether the sucrote is, like, a symbol or a folkloric spirit of the jungle or the jungle personified into some kind of strange creature. Um, he does give the description of... Um, a being that delivers jungle justice and <laughs> has kind of a an ape body with orange fur. Yeah, I mean, that's one of like three or four different descriptions we get of this thing. So I did some quick research because I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no such thing, as far as I can tell. Of a sucarote. Like, folklorically speaking, there's no such thing. Yes, there's no record. Yeah. There is record of a sucoyant, um, which is within, like, Caribbean folklore, kind of going into South America, but along the coastal regions mainly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of akin to 
similar myths in Haiti with the Lugaru, mm-hmm. which is um, a shapeshifter like a werewolf. But in the case of the Sokoyant, um, it's more of a witch or old hag figure that sucks blood. So not really what we're dealing with no. here. Um, and then there is an orange-haired creature in South American folklore known as the Kurupira, which resembles a man, protects nature by targeting hunters and poachers, and has backward feet, so basically creating misleading trails to confuse hunters and poachers. Hmm. But again, neither creature seems very relevant to either the descriptions of what we are given or what we see. Yeah, yeah, So for sure. it seems more like these references are flavor text than anything else. Well, it's it, the movie just feels very, like, vague and confused overall about any kind of, like, detailing. Yes. Because, like, we're in the Amazon, but, like, you know, as you sort of already said, like, Al Long has more of a, like, old Eastern European like, witch kind of feel to her, very similar to Wolfman. Her accent feels more Eastern European. Then we've got, like, the treatment of, like, quote-unquote the natives, and, like, that's what tarot's supposed to be, and it's, like, I guess they mean, like, you know, like, Brazilian indigenous peoples, because, like, there's not really, other than a few lines here and there, there's not really, like, a big sign of the fact that, like, you know, this would be a Portuguese colonized country because then the only other people we see are like white plantation owners or like Tom Conway's like British ish doctor character. So the ethnicities at play are really weird. Barney's name is Chavez, which implies like he's Latin American, but you know, he's Raymond Burr. So again, it's like, okay. And then, yeah, this like the creature and it's sort of rules all feel kind of very made up. Right, so Absolutely. it's it's hard to get like a a feel on what any of this is supposed to be. Yeah, um, Doctor Viet begins to suspect that Barney is being poisoned with some kind of drug, and he recommends Dina take him away from the jungle. But before she can act on this advice, Barney says, "No, I'm staying in the jungle forever. This is my home. I hear things like I've seen things like you wouldn't imagine." Um, the leaf from the tallest tree, and so on and so forth. Um, like, as if he's becoming one with the jungle. Um, so he runs off into the jungle to be there forever. Dina follows, urging him to come back, does bring a gun for protection. She gets spooked by stock footage of jaguars, um, and of a mysterious creature coming at her. So, uh, Dr. Viet and Commissioner Taro follow into the jungle after hearing her screams. As they are searching through the jungle, uh, Taro and Viet shoot at a tree, and Barney falls down, nearly dead. Uh, So they rescue Dina, and Barney has enough life left in him um, to kind of crawl to a pond. We see him in, like, Barney form, and in the reflection he sees himself as an ape dissolve into Barney face and then he dies with his face in the water. I don't think they rescued Dina. I thought she was dead. No, she well she was lying there. It's not confirmed whether she's alive or dead, but I mean like the doctor is like chucking her and like He's not really like he's cradling her in his arms as if like she's tragically dead and he doesn't say like oh she's alive and like there's no swelling of music as the two of them embrace. The movie does end instead with Taro like looking sadly at everything, taking his hat off and then just walking away into the jungle. So to me that implied that everyone was dead and it was a tragedy. Sure. That it, it, it is not explicitly said whether she lives or dies, but if she dies, she dies, you know? <laughs> I suppose. I guess it's, it's not a good sign if we walked away from the ending with two different interpretations. interpretations. Um, in any case, that's the end. Yeah. So, I kind of started all of this by saying how I was a little disappointed. Mm-hmm. Part of it is, like, how vague this film is. Mm-hmm. But I think a bigger part of it is, like, in a related part, I suppose, is um, I'm kind of disappointed in Seed Mac with his writing. Hmm. Because we've seen some really good stuff from him. Like, it's just under ten years since Wolfman. 
I walked with a zombie. Like, we know he can do some really awesome work and some really, like, in-depth, well-researched work. We know he also does some schlock. Black Friday, mm. I think, was one. Yeah. Um, And I think this is just, like, because there are pieces, I guess you could say, of the Wolfman formula in this film, it just feels like this is, like, a failed remix and honestly just makes me feel sad. <laughs> like, we know what you're capable of and you deliver this and it's not even like well written that I understand fully what's happening here Mm. like it's confusing I don't think there's enough happening for it to be confusing well it's confusing in the way that like even the order of events is strange because the first night that Bernie comes back from being in the jungle um Dina finds him he's feverish she calls the doctor he helps him sleep and then he goes to Commissioner Tarot because he's like no I think he killed Van Geller um and then he gets a call from Dina saying hey I found Barney again like because we see him come in yeah and when we cut back I think the implication is supposed to be that he's going out every night but there's no feeling of like the passage of time there's no no, like understanding of like now it is the next day Mm -hmm. like it's to the point where it feels like they are getting married the next day after the case has been closed on her husband's death Mm -hmm. which like could be part of the plot it could not be like there's no way to really tell Mm -hmm. as far as directing goes i think seed mac did like a serviceable job Um, there's nothing here where it's like, learn how to hold a camera, buddy. Like, nothing too outrageous. Um, there is a moment in the climax where we have some shaky camera, which is kind of cool. Um, this is not the first shaky camera in film history. Um, I think the very first one is in the silent era. Yeah. Um, but I think this is the first time that we've seen shaky camera in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the directing also wasn't hugely inspired. It just felt very, like, almost rookie or, like, just getting it done. Which, I mean, they only had a week. So, okay. But there was nothing that was done stylistically to add to what was going on on screen. Yeah, I don't know, Sarah. Like, I, I disagree with you. Um, I mean, I don't think the movie's going to win any Oscars anytime soon. But I I disagree that, like, there's nothing being, like, that it's just being limply handled or whatever, that, like, there's nothing being tried here. I kind of disagree with your overall impression of the movie. Okay. Um, And so I'm, I'm finding it hard to, like, address your points because I feel like I saw a different movie or at least, like, saw it from a different angle okay Um, well um share what you thought of the movie well so i think my takeaway my big takeaway from this movie was so i got the impression that they were trying to do something that the movie was going for something i didn't get this didn't feel to me like a bunch of people going like ah fuck it we got a week who gives a shit throw something at the screen because i've seen plenty of those movies Uh, over the course of doing Scream Scene. And this didn't quite feel like that to me. I do think that it never quite gets to whatever it is it's trying to do. But I think what this clearly was to me was an attempt by Kurt Siedmack to remake Wolfman. Yeah. And that it's an attempt to remake Wolfman specifically with a more Val Luton-like framework. He's trying to take his original formula and give it that Val Luton-like psychological, sex-driven ambiguity. Is he really a monster? Is he not? Because we see, like, him walking around in the ape suit and stuff, but it's always from shots that are either explicitly, like, POV shots of his or shots where, like, other characters aren't seeing him. So it's, like, definitely trying to play this ambiguity of, like, is he turning into a monster or is it all in his head? And it's trying to do that, like, Luton thing. And... I think, you know, the movie's trying to do shadows. It's trying to do stylistic stuff. There were 
quite a few shots in this movie that I thought were quite impressive for a, a first time director and b someone who made this movie in a week. Um, I think there's a lot of good cinematography here. I think there's a lot of good camera moves here. I think there's a lot of good use of light and shadow here. Um, in the final chase sequence, there's a lot of like POV from the monster of like the camera moving through the jungle set and like the girl up ahead of him, like screaming and stuff that reminded me of like, the very heavy use of that kind of shot, like, later in the 1980s and stuff. There was stuff here that, to me, said that, like, the movie was trying to do more than what it was capable of. I think what kills this movie is that it clearly had no money. It had no money, it had no time, and it's killed by a lot of the same things that kill a lot of B-movies, which is, like, it feels like they have two sets, for one thing. There's, like, the living room of the main house and the jungle, and so the entire plot just becomes about, like, people going from the living room to the jungle and back. And yeah. anything that doesn't happen in those spaces doesn't really get depicted or, like, doesn't have an opportunity to happen. And even when they go out into the jungle, it never really feels like we're out in, like, the jungle. You know, this primal space where, oh, I'm overtaken by my animal, whatever. Because, like, it always feels like we're maybe 20 feet away from the house like, at most, and it just feels really hampered by this feeling that, like, the story's very locked down to this one spot, but, like, Raymond Burr's trying to give his best at doing a performance of this, like, guy who's this very, like, emotionally driven, intense dude who then is, like, going through this weird, terrifying experience that he doesn't really understand. I'm not sure, like, when... Marlon Brando kind of hits the scene, but it feels like Raymond Burr's trying to, like, do that more kind of, like, emotionally driven, like, primal kind of acting rather than that old-fashioned kind of, like, style of Hollywood acting. You can really see it in the difference between him versus, like, Tom Conway and Lon Chaney, who are leading men of that, like, earlier generation. I think he's really trying his best with the, like, material he has. I think Barbara Payton's doing, like, a pretty good job with, like, her character, what they're kind of trapped by is that they don't do anything. Like, the movie's biggest problem is that it sets up this scenario of, like, he loved her, so he gets the husband out of the way, and now they're together, but he's cursed. So now he's an animal monster. And then it just feels like the movie, you know, it it does the thing that's the worst thing these B-movies can do, which is the movie then spins its wheels for you know, 40 minutes or whatever until the last 10 minutes. Like there's a huge long stretch of the movie that you basically sort of brushed over. And I don't blame you because nothing happens in it. There's just a lot of repetitive scenes of him going into the jungle and coming back and them talking about, well, we love each other. So we'll leave, or maybe we won't leave, or maybe we'll separate, or maybe we'll stay together. But like, we're just going to keep having variations of the same conversation in this living room over and over again. And sometimes, like, some of those scenes, I think, are pretty good scenes. Like, I think they're well-acted or or well-shot. Individual scenes that are good on their own, but, like, altogether, they're still just scenes that aren't advancing the story in any way until, like, the last ten minutes. Mm -hmm. So, I think, like, for me, the biggest problem with this movie is that nothing happens in it. There's just a lot of stuff trying to distract you from the fact that nothing's happening in it. Yeah, I think I would agree with what you're saying about, um this being, like, Wolfman through a Luton lens. Mm -hmm. Um, I think my problem, though, is that Luton's films, and let's just say Cat People and The Wolfman, Mm -hmm. are now ten years ago. Yes. So this movie feels stale. Yeah. These ideas feel stale. And I, I expected Seed Mac to have something new to say, not just, like, him trying to do his big hits, but doing them worse. It doesn't surprise me in one way, because it's his first time directing, and so I have this, like, sense of a guy who's like, ah, but now I'll be in charge. Mm. You know, I can do it the way I always wanted to do it, or whatever, right? Like, I've seen enough directors and actors who have spent their careers remaking versions of their own films over and over again to not be surprised by it. But you're right that, like, this is trying to hit trends that have been over for half a decade. You know, you talked about Seed Mac writing I Walked With a Zombie, which has kind of the, like, 
plantation feel of this movie. But of course, we have to remember that like Art L. Ray came in and rewrote that script, and then like Val Luton came in and rewrote it again. And this, I don't know, I do feel like this feels like Seed Mac, you know, trying to prove that like Wolfman wasn't a fluke or something, you know, that he can do it again or whatever. But the budget lets him down so much because like, you know, we talked about how the setting doesn't really make any sense or at least how like the various pieces of it don't work. Like, yeah, you know, let's just start with the gorilla. Yeah. There are no gorillas in the Amazon, right? There's well, primates, but no apes. Right. And the, the Sucaro, the like monster, there's a few different scenes in the movie where like, it gets described. Like, when the livestock's first getting killed, uh, Taro is like, oh, you know, there's some beast out there killing animals. And maybe it's a puma. Some others say it looks like an ape. Others say it's like this big thing on hind legs with red fur. And it's like, those are three very different descriptions. And the the word ape, I feel like, is only said, like, once. The rest of the time, they just talk about, like, a beast on hind legs. And it gives me this feeling like the script was written without sort of a clear notion of what the monster was. Like they wrote a script and they were like, whatever suit we can get, whatever makeup we can get, we'll just keep it vague in the script so it fits either way. So the only reason it's a gorilla is because they could get a gorilla suit, right? Like that's it. And the fact that it's all in his head kind of helps justify that the suit's a little dodgy. But like the only reason they're using the suit is because they have access to it. It feels like, right? Yeah. Like it feels like the idea that the monster looks like an ape is kind of being written in on the day. Cause it's like, Hey guys, we got an ape suit. Make sure to say it's an ape. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then like, you know, it's got this Wolfman European style curse that gets put on him. That doesn't seem to fit the setting. And, and doesn't seem to have any kind of logical rules. And doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a curse. She's no. just poisoning him. No. Well, and also, like, you know, okay, so it's ambiguous whether, like, she's just poisoning him into this delusion of he's an ape. At one point, Conway kind of briefly brings up the idea that maybe Barney's guilty conscience is making him crazy and making him think he's an ape, which is sort of an idea that's thrown out and never really dealt with. Maybe he is becoming an ape. Maybe it's a curse. Maybe it's magic. Maybe it's Maybelline. But, like... <laughs> The the thing about it that struck me was that the curse doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because Al Long's motivation is that, like... So the movie's trying to do this thing where, like, Barney is kind of this bad guy. He's an asshole, and, like, this is how he gets his comeuppance, right? That's the idea. And it's, like, this tragic thing. It's it's Wolfman. We've all seen Wolfman. Yeah. And, Except Larry Talbot's a good guy. Well, Larry Talbot's kind of a bit of a jerk in the first movie, right? He becomes sympathetic because he has this horrible curse, and it forces him to, like, sort of have to, like, depend on other people. But he's not. He's kind of a jerk in that first movie for a little bit. But he's still likable. I don't think Barney was ever supposed to be charming or likable. I think Seed Max going, well, it's 1951. I'm going to, like, you know dial up that character a little bit and have him really just be this, like, sort of big, muscular bruiser type, right? I think Raymond Burr does a good job at being this character. Um, but what doesn't make sense is that she doesn't curse him as revenge for killing Van Gelder. Like, she doesn't no. seem to care about that. No, it's for Marina. Right, because he was, like, you know, he was fucking her, and then he got with you know, the lady of the house, so he doesn't really need to be with her anymore and kind of cast her aside. And she's a native and Al Long's a native, so I guess natives got to stick together, so she curses him. But then, like, the biggest problem with the movie, you know, when I said that nothing happens, is that once he starts being a monster, he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Right? Like, the beast goes around and kills some livestock here and there. Off screen. Off screen. And that's it. Like, he doesn't go after the people who are hit Barney's enemies, right? Like, you would think that because there's um, Dr. Viet, who has, like, a subplot where he's also in love with Dina. So, like, he's kind of an enemy in Barney's eyes. And Taro, like, suspects Barney from the get-go, so he's an enemy. But the Beast doesn't go after them. That's not part of the story, even though doing that would at least have something be happening in the middle part of the movie. But also nothing's happening to Barney that, like, makes sense with Al Long wanting to get at him. Like, yeah, eventually the jungle gets him or whatever. But it's a really roundabout kind of revenge to be like, well, 
you're an asshole because you dumped a girl who I like uh, and am a mentor figure to or a grandma figure to. So my revenge is I'm going to make you think you're a gorilla until that gets you killed. Like, that's a very... And what I kind of got the sense of, like, if we want to talk about why this doesn't work and Wolfman does or Cat People does or I Walked With a Zombie does, right? On the one hand, like, we're watching the movie and we're like, oh, this is a bunch of bullshit. Wolfman is kind of a bunch of bullshit. Like, we talk about in the episode, like, he makes up all the werewolf lore in there. Yeah. It's just that the flavor of that lore fits. It feels like there's an internal consistency. Yeah, and it fits enough with, like, old-fashioned Eastern European stuff that, like, when you hear the lore in Wolfman, your brain just goes, oh, yeah, of course, that's of course that's how werewolves work. That's how they've always worked. Yeah. You know, and the reason why that is probably because Kurt Siedmack's from Germany. I get the impression that Kurt Siedmack doesn't do research. You know, yeah. you talked about well-researched earlier. The well-researched part of I Walked With a Zombie comes from Luton, right? And the well-researched part of Wolfman comes from his upbringing, right. as you're pointing it's, out. Yeah, it's not about he knows how what the real werewolf lore is. It's that he's from a culture that's seeped enough in it that he can he can bullshit it well enough, right? Yeah. He can't bullshit this well enough, and I get the sense that he really didn't do any research. So he, he didn't really bother to make the details fit together. And ultimately it didn't matter because this movie was made in seven days for like $12 and was never supposed to be anything other than like the bottom half of a double feature with a re-released old Universal movie, right? So there wasn't enough reason for anyone to care about making that part work. But then like he's trying to be a good director and the actors are trying to like do their best with the material. And so it's like, it's such a great example of the fact that, like, if you don't give a shit about what's at the core of your movie, it doesn't really matter if you're putting effort into all the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that it's disappointing, you know, coming from Seed Mac. But I kind of have some empathy for, like, what happened here. Because what happened here was a movie that was, like, hampered by the fact that the people making it are more intelligent and talented than the project they're working on. Like, like, Seed Mac's just good enough of a writer that, like, a lot of the dialogue still kind of works. And the actors are just good enough that, like, Cheney's character, for instance, Cheney's character makes no sense. His character is supposed to have this, like, inner conflict between, like, oh, I was raised Native, but I was educated Western, but, like... You know, Seed Max puts so little effort into things that all of the native stuff is very caricaturish. You know, like Cheney has dialogue about how, like, oh well, once I get into the jungle, like I can find my way out around like anyone because I have native I'm a, superpowers. Yeah, I'm a native, so I have like plus two to survival in the jungle, right? Like, which is why it also bothered me. Like, if in that dialogue mm-hmm. we're saying that native Brazilians, yeah whether indigenous or not, because it's unclear what Tarot's supposed to be. Yeah, is he Spanish? Is he... What's the deal? Um, if, as soon as they get into the jungle, they feel right at home, they can see the leaf from the tallest tree, then Chavez, Mm -hmm. would he not also have this quote-unquote same ability? So why is this, like, poison affecting him in this way? It's... It's... The movie... Because it's, like, it's unclear where the movie is drawing the line between, you know, because it's trying to do the Hollywood horror movie thing of, like, the magic and the um, mysticism and the exoticism coming from, like, native magic, ooh, right? But it doesn't know where the lines get drawn, in the case of South America, between indigenous person, Latin American, and white, Yeah. right? It has... That hierarchy 100% exists in that movie, but this movie doesn't know what the differences are. It knows the differences are there, though. It definitely wants the differences to be there. It wants to exist in that racial hierarchy, but it doesn't know enough about actual real South America to make those distinctions clear, which then makes the rest of the movie really unclear. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, the Latino ethnicity Mm -hmm. goes across what you could consider, like, skin color. Yeah. There are black or Latinx, there's white Latinx, like, Mm -hmm. there's a range there. And so it can be messy, especially for someone who is in America where things are a bit more defined. Yes. 
yeah, where there's where there's very defined lines of this and that. Um, but I think like we're not looking at something like a corpse vanishes or or devil bat or something where it's like so or or, or flying serpent where it's like so completely inept that you're like laughing at it. Yeah. But it's also not good enough to be enjoyable. Yeah, so it's just kind of there. It's I don't know. I wasn't bored. I was just like it's it's like when as a TA I would get assignments back from students and I would know what they're capable of and I'd be like Bobby what what happened? Like, yeah. did did stuff come up and needed to write this the night before? Like, what's going on that you submitted this for your final assignment? Yeah. Because I know you can do more. And I think I know, you know, to me, I know what happened here. And it was, you have to make a 70-minute movie and you have a budget that's going to allow you for maybe 20 minutes of plot. Yeah. That's what's happening here because there's no story for a large portion of it it's just a lot of like i said earlier spinning its wheels um and what makes it frustrating to me to watch is that like tom conway's a good actor lon cheney's a good actor like their dialogue's bad but like cheney because i think he's been in enough seed mac films he knows the tone seed mac wants to go for so he says all of his lines in the right tone that they should be in even if the words themselves indicate that the lines are stupid you know what i mean absolutely like, like they're making things work when they shouldn't and and cid max trying to direct and he's like trying to do cool stuff like with thunder and lightning and and moving camera stuff like he is trying i just think that there's intelligence and talent and effort that are being expended on this movie that are completely defeated and feel like they, it's like wasted, because this movie was never given enough money or time to be anything in the first place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 frustrating, but I, I think what results out of that is it's like a better than average B-movie. I would watch this over a lot of Poverty Row stuff, but there's no reason to watch this twice. You know what I mean? Sure, absolutely. Like, like I've seen this, and I don't have any desire to ever see it again. Not necessarily because it, like, offended me with how bad it was, but just because, like, there's no reason to. There's nothing, there's not enough here to go back to. Yeah. Um, whereas the Poverty Row stuff that it's technically better than, some of those I'd like to watch again because they're dumb enough to be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, where would you rank this? I had a really hard time even finding a place on the list to start with this. Okay. Because I do, for the reasons I sort of said earlier, like, it's it's hard, like what do you do with a movie that isn't good, but is made by people who are talented enough that, like, the pieces of it are good, you know? Sure. Um, so I don't, I don't really know how I started. I don't know how I found this spot, but I think what I finally settled on was nothing about this movie was interesting. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is kind of what you were saying, too, right? So even though I found a lot of it well done, or at least trying to well done, I was working my way down the list to try and find where do movies stop being interesting on the <laughs> list. And I found that spot. Below Genuina, above the bat. Because Genuina is interesting. Cry of the Werewolf. The Vampire Bat, a couple spots above that. That movie's not well made. I would say this movie is better made than that movie. But The Vampire Bat is interesting. It's got, like, a thing it's trying to say about mob violence. And it's also got, like, a sponge in a jar that's, like, a weird mad science creation. Supernatural above that isn't, like, good by traditional definitions of good. But it's interesting. It's got weird possession stuff going on. Below that, you've got the bat, the magician, the bat whispers. Stuff that just starts to kind of, like, bore me. Sure. So that's my ceiling. I don't think this movie goes above Genuina. So working my way down, I was like, right, but the Edison Frankenstein's kind of cool. The Brute Man had, like, cool stuff. Pika Vyadama has, like, some weirdo early silent imagery. The Devil Bat is fun. Uh, the Unknown is kind of fucked up. Like I, I, So it's like... <laughs> you know, I could find things to like about all these movies here. 
And then I hit Jungle Woman, which is boring. And so I realized, I don't think Bride of the Gorilla is boring. But I also don't think it's interesting. And I think the movies stop being interesting at 92 and start being boring at 110. Not interesting, but not boring. That's fair. Um, I, as we've discovered in the discussion, have a lower opinion of this movie. Yeah. So my range is lower than yours. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that this wasn't, like, bottom of the list. Yeah. I started at the bottom and worked my way up. Uh-huh. And I... Just did the Drake method. Yeah. And I stopped around Spider-Woman Strikes Back and Scared to Death. Um, because scared to death, uh, isn't uh, good, but no. it's, it's hella interesting. It's, yes. it's doing things, yes. you know, they're, they're just throwing everything Stuff's at happening the all the time, even if none of it matters. Same with like the Mad Ghoul, Crime of Dr. Crespi, Sex Maniac, like all of these are like, we don't know what we're doing, so we're just doing it all. Right. <laughs> and this is what I mean when I said like, This movie's in this really bad, weird, awkward spot of being, like, well-made enough that you can't, like, find that joy of what the fuck that these movies have, but not well-made enough to actually be worth watching on its own right. Like, the thing that makes Maniac and Scared to Death special is you get the feeling that the people making them don't really know how to make movies. Like, Scared to Death feels like it's made by someone who knows what a movie is, but doesn't know how to do any of it. Yeah. Whereas, like, Bride of the Gorilla's problem is that it's being made by people who demonstrably know how to make movies, but aren't being given, like, the resources to make a movie, you know? So, yeah, you end up with this weird thing where, yeah, I would absolutely watch Scared to Death again before this. So, my range was between The Monster Walks at 134, because I feel like The Monster Walks also was just boring, Mm -hmm. like, uninspired, stale. But I also wouldn't go below The Monkey's Paw at 143, which I know is quite a bit down from where yours was. So if we look at the midpoint between our ranges, there's The Monster Maker at 121. There's a giant ape in that one, too, who's, like, released... And goes to, like, attack oh, like the girl. the dog attacks Yes, it? and he, it's not, it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. They just had a suit lying around and decided to use it. Yeah, you know what? Um, Bread of the Gorilla can go above Monster Maker. Now, Return of the Ape Man above that is the one where um, Karloff and... It's a Car- caveman. Karloff an and, ape. Yes, Karloff and Carradine find George Zuko frozen in the ice, and when they unthaw him, he's not George Zuko anymore. Yeah. Well, let me let me just speed things up a little bit. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, Jungle Woman was boring. Jungle Captive is right here. Above that song of At Midnight, which I feel like is always a sticking point with us. <laughs> Such a weird movie to compare anything else to. Fuck, man. This is a rough area. Yeah, it is. This, I... it's, it's a rough patch of list, that's for sure. Um, You got all these mummy movies that are just like... And then Ugh. Werewolf of London, Avenging Conscience, even the Golem. Well, the Golem is so weird because it's here because it sort of like is and isn't a horror movie. Yeah. Um. And then the Black Cat here is the one that's like it's the in the comedy. mansion. It's the comedy yeah. Black Cat. Yeah. You know what? I think I would put Bride of Gorilla below Song at Midnight, but above Jungle Captive. I'm feeling that. I think that's totally fine. Because Song at Midnight was very inspired. Like, it's a very unique adaptation of the Phantom of the Opera thing. The makeup was very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was a very cool movie to watch. It was unique. Unique, yeah. And then, like, even above that, like, all of these other ones are fairly unique, even in terms of, like, interpretation of what they are adapting. So mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah. That's that's where I would probably put this out. Yeah, okay. I'm willing to do that. I think that's totally fair. Awesome. Entering the list at number 119 between Song at Midnight and Jungle Captive is Bride of the Gorilla from 1951, directed by Kurt Siedmack. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screenscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit an appeal through our Ask box on Tumblr, you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. 
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else fine podcasts are sold uh, (laughs) if you subscribe to us through our RSS feed. It helps the show out a lot if you leave us a rating or a review. It can also help us out by sharing us with friends over social media or by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. As we work towards our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, if we manage to hit that, we will start doing an extra fifth episode every month on horror-adjacent films, covering movies such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which we mentioned earlier in this episode. Yeah, and would be cool to watch. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week... We are are at, at Columbia Pictures. Okay. We haven't been there in a while, and it's 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 the son of Doctor Jekyll. But what about Mister Hyde? No, just the son of Doctor Jekyll. Is it like a a co-parenting situation? Who's the wife? Who's mom? Who was phone? Find out next week, creatures of the night. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.